eight months ago, I moved to Frederick from Tampa, Florida. Everyone asks, why Frederick? I made a list of must-haves and considered several locations. One of them was that it had to have a strong, healthy UU congregation and minister, a fine choir, choir director, and musicians. The UUCF exceeded in all criteria, and I'm delighted to live here and grateful to Reverend Carl for inviting me to speak today. I'm a retired second career parish minister, having served two churches in Florida as their settled minister, retirement from full-time ministry. That was my second career retirement before becoming a minister. I taught comparative literature and, comp and composition at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee for over 20 years. In 1998, I retired from UW-Milwaukee and went to seminary in Berkeley. Well, since moving here to Frederick in May and joining this congregation, during this pandemic, I've had a chance to meet and talk with some of you, mostly on Zoom, and would like to give a shout out to our small group. We call ourselves Eight Over 80. And another shout out to the book group and a third special greeting to the retired UU ladies eating out. Thank you all. You have made me feel most welcome with your radical hospitality. Thank you. So let's engage the present moment and reflect. This has been a distressful few weeks following a distressful year. We hear the daily cautions about full hospitals and off-the-charts numbers of COVID patients. We are reminded of ongoing devastation caused by climate change, with more very weird and potentially dangerous weather predicted. It's very scary stuff. How do we not be scared all the time? How do we maintain an even keel? How do we not become anxious to the point of locking our doors and hiding under the covers? What's to become of our children and our grandchildren? What can we think about, talk about, consider doing? What can we do as a spiritual practice that will give us the courage, the courage to live every day and find the strength to face these challenges? Today, I'm saying the way to deal with the problems of our time is to think about them from the point of view of our Unitarian Universalist faith. What's this point of view? It's stated clearly in our purposes and sources. My focus during this time today is on the first source, which says, the living tradition which we share draws from many sources, including direct experience of that transcending mystery and wonder affirmed in all cultures, which moves us to a renewal of the spirit 
and an openness to the forces which create and uphold life. The key words here are direct experience, transcending mystery and wonder, renewal of the spirit, and openness. The way to renew our spirits, which can get very dragged down in the face of the terrible three C's, COVID and climate change, is by experiencing the transcending mystery and wonder. Now, what is the how? That's the problem I'm addressing. How are we supposed to do that? How exactly do we experience the transcending mystery and wonder which moves us to a renewal of the spirit? One of our most esteemed Unitarian ancestors, Ralph Waldo Emerson, writing in the 1800s, provides some answers. He went into the woods, as we heard so eloquently from Catherine. He helped to found the transcendentalist movement of his time and place. He wrote about his experiences in the woods around Concord, Massachusetts, in his journal and his essays. One day after his walk, he wrote, nature reveals an immaterial, transparent reality. It breaks through our intellect. Hmm. Emerson's point of view was that realities revealed to him, to us, in the woods, these are realities we don't need to engage with our intellect or with our reason. In fact, Emerson sometimes uses the word reason to mean intuition. He meant that only through our intuition in solitude can we experience this true reality. On your Zoom connection today is a newspaper cartoon from 1836. Its caption says, Emerson's transparent eyeball, and also quotes these words from Emerson's first essay in the collection Nature that was published that same year, 1836. Standing on the bare ground, my head bathed by the blithe air and uplifted into infinite space, all mean egotism vanishes and I become a transparent eyeball. The image of a transparent eyeball was sure to have gotten a lot of laughs from Emerson's detractors. And sure enough, we see that a cartoonist used Emerson's metaphor of a transparent eyeball to describe the moment of intuition. You see that eyeball standing on legs. You can be sure that this metaphor was a source of glee and caricature like this to artists and writers who enjoyed poking fun at Emerson's metaphor. Emerson was serious. It was his way of describing how we reach our spiritual truth, as if our eyeballs were transparent to see a transparent reality through our intuition, not our reason. 
Emerson describes the same transparency of the senses in a journal entry that he made after a walk in the woods on April 11, 1834. He hasn't yet found the metaphor transparent eyeball. That would take two more years. Here's what he wrote in 1834. Went yesterday back again into the woods. After much wandering and seeing many things, four snakes gliding up and down a hollow, then a far off tree full of clamorous birds, I found a sunny hollow where the east wind could not blow and lay down against the side of a tree to most happy belongings. At last I opened my eyes and let what would pass through them into the soul. I saw no more my relation how near I was to Cambridge or Boston. I heeded no more what minute or hour our Massachusetts clocks might indicate. I saw only that noble earth on which I was born with the great star which warms and enlightens it, I saw the clouds that hang their significant drapery over us. The pines glittered with their innumerable green needles in the light, and the wind bustled high overhead in the forest top. Emerson described the things he saw the day before. He saw snakes that were just snakes, plants that were just plants, and clamorous birds, and he heard the bustling wind. He experienced the passing of all of this directly into his soul. Have you ever, ever experienced anything like that? Ever been out in the woods and opened your eyes and let what would pass through them into your soul? I believe we innately know, as Emerson wrote, that there is no screen or ceiling between our heads and the infinite heavens, that there is deep power in which we exist and whose beatitude is accessible to us. We just need to go into the woods or whatever serves as woods for you on these wintry days to experience it. Well, it came to me, as I was thinking about this sermon, it came to me that I have experienced transcendental moments, maybe even dozens of them, in my life over 4,000 weeks. Let me tell you about one such time. It was a pleasant day in early July. The year was 1950. I'm about to be 10 years old. And on this day, I'm with 10 other, or 10, I'm with other 10-year-old Girl Scouts with our leaders. We're on the Appalachian Trail. It was close to our community, not further than 10 or 15 miles from where we grew up in central Dauphin County, just east of Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. The entrance to the trail near Piketown was well known to everyone in the area there on that east side of the Susquehanna River, high up so that at points on the trail you could look down the mountain and see the river. That Girl Scout hike in 1950 was my first hike 
on that particular part of the Appalachian Trail, and more would follow as, as student and church groups regularly hiked there. That first experience on the Appalachian Trail, 1950, was also my first experience with what Emerson called a century before, that transcending experience, that overwhelming experience of mystery and wonder. On that July day, our Girl Scout leaders encouraged us to explore nature on the trail. Notice the different kinds of trees, they said. Notice the mosses. Notice the worms and the wildflowers. Look around, look closely. See what you can see. And then after a while, suddenly some of us discovered a spring. It got our attention. Water was bubbling out of the ground. Our shoes were getting wet. We were laughing and jumping up and down, and our leaders came near and called the others to gather around. I was awed by that spring, blown away. I didn't have those expressions in my 10-year-old lexicon. Of course, I also didn't have Emerson's metaphors to describe the indescribable feeling. In retrospect, it was as Emerson described his experiences, like when he said, well, this is definitely in retrospect, there is no screen or ceiling between our heads and the infinite heavens. There is deep power in which we exist and whose beatitude is accessible to us. The light around me seemed to change, get brighter. I remember I was shivery. It was a warm day. I was thrilled, thrilled by the slow water bubbling out of the earth. How did we think about that experience later? What did we say to our friends who hadn't been there? What did we tell our parents? We had limited knowledge of metaphors to describe a spiritual experience. The brief spiritual experience I had at the spring did not match up with the religious iconography that I was being taught in Sunday school. All of us in that Girl Scout troop were part of the same Protestant community in the area. We were all Calvinists, that's a word I know now, and Trinitarians. At age 10, we wouldn't have known to call ourselves that. In our Saturday confirmation classes, we studied the Holy Trinity and the imagery of the Bible. We memorized names of the Old and New Testament, books of the Bible. We learned about the miracles, about Moses dividing the Red Sea, about the burning bush, and about how Jesus fed a huge crowd with a limited number of loaves and fishes. Those miracles were very easy to visualize. In fact, our Bibles were full of pictures. Jesus walking on water, Jesus bringing the dead man to life, Jesus next to a burning bush, or Moses, rather. Gee, Moses next to the burning bush. I knew about those miracles, but here's the thing, as a 10-year-old on that day in 1950, something happened to me. It didn't happen when I read about those miracles. As a 10-year-old discovering that Appalachian Spring, that water coming out of the ground, I had a wordless moment. I was like a transparent eyeball. 
There were no words, no angels singing hosannas, yet it was something. Otherwise, I wouldn't remember it 4,000 weeks later. I wasn't sure what it was. Now what do I know? I know for sure it was a moment of transcendence, a moment of something indescribable, a moment when nothing visible happened. Ten years later, I had a summer job between my sophomore and junior years at Hood College. I was one of several music and theater counselors at Camp Wohilo near Blue Ridge Summit. We counselors had one afternoon off a week. It was Monday afternoon. And often we enjoyed long afternoon walks up the mountain and into the woods. At the time, there was a Jesuit retreat center up there. And one day on the wooded path near the center, I met a priest. And over the summer, we became friends. He was very friendly and engaging. We walked and talked. He introduced me to other Jesuit priests. And during the following school year, back at Hood here in Frederick, he and a friend of his visited me. He guided me in several important aspects of my life that were entirely non-religious. I remember he asked me, why don't you wear more makeup? Why do you ride your bike to class in the administration building when it's only five minutes away by foot? He asked me stuff like that. And in retrospect, I find it that ironic. Uh, by then, I had discarded my Trinitarian faith, the faith of my childhood, and I would not find Buddhism and transcendentalism, uh, transcendental Unitarian Universalism, for another 40 years. That priest did not try to convert me to Catholicism. What he did ask me were things like, what are you planning to major in at Hood? Answer, English. His question, why? My answer, I want to be a writer. His question, well, what are you going to write about? My answer, not sure. His question, what's your point of view? My answer, not sure. The only thing I was sure of that summer was JFK all the way. <laughs> Him, you have to have a point of view. His tirade about having a point of view was a little annoying to me. But in time, it made me realize that I'd given up the religion of my childhood and had no point of view. I was aware about life, religions, spirituality, or anything else. I wasn't aware of my point of view about life, religion, spirituality, or anything else. As I mentioned, I had discarded the Trinitarian faith of my childhood. I would not find Buddhism and transcendental Unitarian Universalism until the early 1990s. I found them both, first a Buddhist meditation group, and then the Unitarian Congregation North that had in Milwaukee, 
that had built their octagonal barn-like church in a wooded meadow. It had taken a, pers a very personal crisis, a divorce, and reading a book by philosopher Richard Nozick to finally start me on a search for a real point of view for how to live my life and have a spiritual practice. I am grounded now back here in the foothills of the Appalachians, not very far away from where I saw the spring bubbling forth. A couple of final thoughts first. Reading Suzanne Samard in her book published last year called Finding the Mother Tree, Discovering the Wisdom of the Forest. Samard writes about the interdependence of the trees. As a scientist, she discovered that trees communicate and cooperate with each other in networks. With Samard's discoveries in mind, I find it easy to reflect on even a short 10-minute walk in my Frederick neighborhood on a snowy day. I find it easy to reflect that nature has a whole lot going on under the surface, a whole lot going on that is miraculous. My second and final thought, a new and comprehensive book about the transcendentalists in their world was also published last year. The author, Robert Gross, states that Emerson's reputation as a writer and speaker was growing in the 1840s, and critics such as Horace Greeley, publishing in the New Yorker magazine in 1840, praised Emerson as one of the profoundest thinkers and loftiest spirits in the land and predicted that the world will soon recognize him as one of the most spiritual and wisest of its teachers. I didn't want to leave you with the idea that Emerson wasn't taken seriously and had only detractors that mocked him with caricatures in the 1840s. As it turns out, he indeed was to become one of the profoundest thinkers and loftiest spirits of the land.